Welcome to the Billingshurst Family Church Podcast. For more information or to support our work in Billingshurst and the surrounding areas, please visit billingshurstfamily.church. So good morning everyone, my name's Craig if you don't know me and I'm really excited to be speaking to you all this morning Um, and I just want to mark a really key moment in the life of Billingshurst Family Church. We've had a bit of a chat around, someone might know better than me, but In October, which we're now in, of 2001, a church was planted and started in Billingshurst. And it was this church. This month, this church turns 18 years old. Um, Which I think is a, a, you know, we might mark 10 years and 20 years and stuff like that. But 18, it's like coming of age. You know, the church is now an adult. Well done, church. It's brilliant. But I just think it's an amazing testimony to the faithfulness of God that there has been this church in this village for this length of time. And it's entirely God's doing. You know, I know you guys all played a fantastic part, but it's, it's, it's all about God at the end of the day. So this morning then, we're going to have a quick look at uh, a bit of British history. And why not? There are quite a few people that we look back on as heroes of history. Uh, Admiral Lord Nelson for his naval exploits. Um, the Duke of Wellington for his victory... Uh, at the Battle of Waterloo, Eisenbard Kingdom Brunel, the engineer, the famous engineer of the Victorian era, who built many, many things. Winston Churchill, probably, you know, probably will go, yeah, 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 you know, Prime Minister during the Second World War, and again, which wasn't quite, wasn't quite the same. Um, maybe another hero we might consider is maybe even Alan Turing, the, the, the man behind um, the earliest form of the modern computer. Or even Tim Berners-Lee, the, uh, the creator of the World Wide Web. People who have had an impact on our, on our lives today. Our world might not be as it is now if it wasn't for people like these, for these sorts of heroes. And others may find their heroes in more modern people. I haven't got photos of these because we all know what they look like. Maybe some people ha- find a hero in Boris Johnson. Maybe some find a hero in Jeremy Corbyn. Who knows? Who knows why? There are many options (laughs) and many opinions of what constitutes a hero. One thing we know for sure, though, is that when things get hard, when the battle is at a loss, when there seems like there's no way forward, and what's needed is a near-miraculous solution, we often long for a hero figure to get us out of the mess we're in, whether it's war with the French or Brexit. Don't start saying it's the same thing. <laughs> now, obviously, we're, we're a, a church that loves the Bible. We love reading about what God has done and what God's plans are. Um, and for the people of Israel, there's a book in the Old Testament which can be looked at like the book of heroes. The book full of the stories of people who rise up to rescue the nation and to point them back to God. And that book is the book of Judges. Uh, This is our second introductory sermon to the book of Judges, and uh, we're going to look at that now. But I think it's important that we pray, and then we'll we'll dive straight in. Lord God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth that it contains. You know, it is the truth above all truths. If there was an ultimate truth, your word is it. You are it, Lord God. And we pray for this morning that you would speak your truth to us, that you'd help us to discern what is of you, what is of me, and that we get the gold. Um, 
that, that you're gifting us this morning, Lord God. Just pray be with us now by your spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I realized when I was uh, thinking about this that we don't really, we might not all know what this book of Judges is. It might just be flicking through the contents page in your Bible and suddenly you look, oh, there's a book called Judges. You've got no idea where it goes or what it does, what it's about or anything. So I thought I'd take us through a brief history, as quick as I can, a brief history of uh, the nation of Israel, those descended from a man called Jacob, uh, who was also known as Israel. And there are great stories of God's promise and God's protection over his chosen people. God promised a man called Abraham that his descendants would be great in number, as many as the stars in the heavens and the sand on the seashore. A promise made to a man who at that point had no children. He was old. He wasn't likely to have any children. Him and his wife were old. They weren't likely to have any children. Um, But we probably remember the story of how that promised child comes. Uh, comes along, and his name was Isaac. And when Abraham dies, Isaac takes on the patriarchal, patriarchal role, and he has two sons, twins, called Esau and Jacob. And Jacob is the second-born son, which in those days meant that your birthright wasn't as great as the first-born son. Um, and uh, Jacob is a little bit wily, a little bit cheeky, and his mum helps him along the way. And uh, he manages to persuade his near-blind father... Isaac, that he was Esau when it came to giving, a bless, giving his blessing, telling him about his inheritance. Um, and he manages to get hold of Esau's blessing from Isaac. And he inherits the family and its wealth. All his relatives become his servants. And Esau's obviously a little bit upset by this. Um, you know, I say a little bit upset. He wants to kill his brother. You know, that might be a, <laughs> a little bit upset, might be an understatement. Um, and so Jacob thinks, ah, you know, I better go off and go, go and escape my brother. So he goes off to find a wife. Um, and, and in typical fashion, I don't know if it's happened to you, he marries two wives. Um, uh, he has to marry the not-so-pretty one first, um, and then actually the one he, he wanted to marry. And, uh, and with these two wives, oh, and don't forget, they've got slaves as well. So with these four women, he has 12 children, 12 sons, sorry those that make up the 12 tribes of Israel. Eventually, under one of those sons, Joseph, if we remember the dream coat, if we remember the multicolored coat, um, the whole family of Israel move into Egypt. Um, and they live happily ever after. Except they don't. Um, some 400 years later, God calls a man called Moses to bring Israel out of the slavery that they were now in in Egypt. And he does it. And as we heard and enacted the other week, um, Moses leads the people across the Red Sea and towards the promised land, uh, the land promised to Abraham all those years before. Moses leads the people into the desert and God provides mightily for them, miraculously giving them food and water every day, building the people's reliance on him, building their trust. God even gives the law through Moses. And the people encounter God at the mountain in the cloud and in the thunder. God then calls them to go. Go into the land promised to them. And they stood there. They went and they got to the edge of the land and they didn't go in. They sent spies in. You know, they stood there on the edge of the land, they sent spies in. Um, and uh, Moses sent in 12 men to spy out the land, one from each tribe. And two of them were called Joshua and Caleb. And when the 12 spies returned, 10 of them were fearful of what they had seen. Two of them, though, Joshua and Caleb, called out to the people, telling them how the land was a good land. It's a good place. God's with us. 
they said. And that uh, they would go in and they'd drive the people out of the land. But the hearts of the people of Israel had, had rebelled. They'd turned away from what God was calling them to. They'd stopped trusting God. So God denied them from being able to enter the land. And uh, they wouldn't be allowed to enter the land until that generation had passed away. And at the end of it, the only ones who were, who were left from that previous generation was Joshua and Caleb. And they wandered the desert for 40 years until Moses died. And Joshua was appointed leader of the nation of Israel. Once this generation had died out, only they were left. Uh, Joshua and Caleb were left. God told Joshua to lead the people across the Jordan, where once again water was parted and they crossed over on dry ground. Finally, after all these years and years and years, the nation of Israel sets its feet on the promised land. And they had one mission. Go in, trust God, trust in the Lord, drive out all the occupants, take possession of all the land that was promised to them. And through ups and downs, through learning to listen and be obedient to God, they made good progress. They did all right. They achieved some of what God told them to do, but not all of it by the end of Joshua's life. You have to remember, you know, he was already an older man by the time they'd entered Canaan. They wandered in the desert for 40 years. He was an, old, an older guy. And so before he dies, he called together the leaders. And we find ourselves in Joshua chapter 3, if you want to read along. Uh, and he says to the leaders, Be very strong and continue obeying all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, so you do not turn from it to the right or left. And so you do not associate with these nations remaining among you. Do not call on the names of their gods or make an oath to them. Do not serve them or bow in worship to them. Instead, be loyal to the Lord your God as you have been to this day. The Lord has already driven out, has driven out great and powerful nations before you and no one is able to stand against you to this day. One of you rooted a thousand because the Lord your God was fighting for you as he promised. So diligently watch yourselves. Love the Lord your God. If you ever turn away and become loyal to the rest of these nations remaining among you, and if you intermarry or associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will not continue to drive these nations out before you. They will become a snare and a trap to you, for you, a sharp stick for your sides and thorns in your eyes until you disappear from this good land the Lord your God has given you. Joshua warns them. He reminds them of all that God has done. Warns them, stick with God. Don't go off and marry the people of the land. Don't bow down to their gods. And Joshua knows that if the people go off with the Canaanites, with the people of the land, that the Canaanite way of life will lead them to follow other gods. It will lead them astray. And it will cause them to turn away from the God of Israel. And Joshua warns them what the result will be if they don't do what God has said they should do. In Joshua 23, 16, he says, If you break the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow in worship to them, the Lord's anger will burn against you, and you will quickly disappear from this good land he has given you. And as we read on, Joshua's warning is then followed by the people of Israel, all gathered in one place. They're all gathered together in one place, and they recommit to the covenant made by their ancestors to worship God alone, to not marry the locals, so, so to avoid being tempted to worship their gods as well as Yahweh, the God of Israel. And I just 
or just take a pause, I just really recommend having a read of at least the last two chapters of the book of Joshua, because it stands us in really good stead to look at the book of Judges, see all the promises the people made and all the ways that they failed to live up to what they had promised. Um, So, we have now made it to the book of Judges. Um, And we're told in chapter 2, verse 7, that the people worshipped the Lord throughout Joshua's lifetime and during the lifetimes of the elders who outlived Joshua. They They had seen all the Lord's great works he had done for Israel. After this address, Joshua dies at 110 years old and is buried in the promised land, the land promised to his fathers. And over time, the elders who had served with him died as well. A generation passed away. And it stands out that this is the same generation. This generation that passed away, died away, failed to follow the law of Moses. Failed to do all that God had told them to do. And we might, you know, it sounds like, and they followed God all the days of their life. Fantastic. That's really, really good. Then the generation died out and they failed. They had failed because they failed to teach their children about God, about what he'd promised them, about what he'd said he would do, about what they were supposed to do, how they were supposed to live, how they were supposed to be completely devoted to him. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 to 6, tells them, you know, it tells us as well, but it tells, would have told them they had the scriptures, listen Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. A new generation rose up that didn't know God, hadn't heard of his great works because the previous generation had failed them. What a tragedy. They promised to worship God and to follow him and yet they didn't train their children to. Throughout the life of Joshua, the people didn't always get it right. The tribes of Israel went throughout the promised land and took possession of it. As we heard last week, though, they didn't complete the job. They only did some of all that God called them to, and they, they compromised. They took some of the land, but not all of it. They satisfied themselves with what they had rather than committing to the fullness of all that God had commanded and promised. And when the new generation was raised up, they had no idea who God was or what he had done for the people. And so the people wandered again. They'd spent 40 years wandering in the desert, and they made it into the promised land. And then Joshua and the elders die, and they wander again. They were settled in the land of their own, but they wandered from the one who gifted it to them. They did evil things in the eyes of God. They worshipped the Baal and the Ashtoreths, the gods of the people who they'd failed to drive out. They abandoned the God of their fathers to bow down to the gods of the surrounding people. And God's anger burned against them. They'd made a promise with God at the end of Joshua. They made a promise with God, a covenant with God, and they'd broken it. You know, as children, there's like a, an unwritten covenant between the ch- child and the parent, okay? So and I think we, we're all aware of it, and we know that the child will bring joy to the parent, obviously in all circumstances, as we well know. Um, and the parent will look after them and care for them and love them, yeah? 
there's that agreement that I think we may never have seen it written down, but we know that to be true. Or another way, when a marriage covenant is agreed between a man and a woman, it is a public declaration of the agreement between the couple. It is a holy moment. And when one of the couple breaks that covenant, when they run off with another man or another woman, the one that's left surely gets angry. And I don't mean mildly frustrated or a little bit irked. All right? No, there's a, there's a burning anger that rises up. And that's because there's a promise that's been broken. A possession, a part of that person that has been stolen or indeed has stolen itself away. I think we can probably all think of people in our lives where there's broken marriages, broken relationships, where you know, there's promises made and then they're broken and we see the fallout that comes. A broken covenant is damaging. And the nation of Israel were in covenant with God. You know, God had promised to give them the land in all its fullness. Israel had promised, had covenanted with God to worship him alone. And yet they adulterated themselves away with other gods, with other people. They had sullied themselves. They had promised purity and delivered shame. The nation whored itself away after lovers other than the one that they had promised to love, honor, and obey. Israel had become an adulterous people, and God's anger, his completely righteous, just anger, burned against them. God is a jealous God and responds in anger to this adultery. So what does this mean? Well, it means that he permits Israel to go the way they want to go. He releases them, but they lose his protection. It says in Judges 2, 14 to 15, the Lord's anger burned against Israel and he handed them over to marauders who raided them. He sold them to the enemies around them and they could no longer resist their enemies. Whenever the Israelites went out, the Lord was against them and brought disaster on them just as he had promised and sworn to them. So they suffered greatly. That's from the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. But the ESV says something that I really... I think really stands out that last sentence where the CSB says, so they suffered greatly. The ESV says they were in terrible distress. You know, they didn't understand why they weren't succeeding and were distressed. You know, maybe their ancestors had failed to tell them everything that they need to do. Maybe they'd just told them the, the, the glory days, but forgot the promises that go with them. You know, maybe they'd only told them how God was on their side. And how they were, but not how they were to follow and obey him or to honor the covenant the nation had agreed with him. You know, they were failed by their fathers. In verse 21, God says, I will no longer drive them out, uh, drive, out, drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. No longer will God go ahead of them and drive out the inhabitants of the land for Israel. And no longer will he be by their side when the armies come to attack. All in all, the, the nation of Israel were in a horrendous situation of their own making, all because they abandoned their God. It's a pretty dire situation, yeah? yeah one, of my, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is found in Ephesians 2, and it's, it's used quite a few times um, through the Bible, and it's two words, but God. 
When we read, but God in the Bible, that should stir a joy in us. Yeah? Because we often, like Ephesians 2, you go through it and you read it, it's like, you were dead in your trespasses and you know, everything was bad, everything was really, really bad. But God. And that's exactly the sort of thing that happens uh, in the passage that we're looking at today. It's the same thing that happens throughout the book of Judges. You end up each time, you, get, uh, you have this sudden victory of this judge, and everyone's like, yay, go judge, go. And then when the judge dies, they fall away. And then eventually they get fed up and upset and frustrated, and they call out to God, and he sends them a judge. You know, Everything's bad, it's awful, but God sent someone. But God sent someone into that situation. I imagine those of you who've been around a little while can see about God sending someone. It's a good thing. God stepped in. He did something about the problem. He raised up these judges to save them. Uh, predominantly, they, they, they were military leaders. They, they got Israel out of horrendous situations. Um, and there's a pattern that appears. And in, verses, in chapter 2, verse 16 to 22, the pattern appears like this. The people are away from God. They've gone their own way. They're doing their own thing. And they're suffering for it. They're out there on their own and they're suffering and they're struggling and they don't know why. And then God hears their suffering and he pities them. He has compassion on them. So he raises up a judge to deliver them out of this situation. He gives them a way out. And they succeed. The judge succeeds and they have peace for a time. But then the judge dies or the judge gets it wrong and they abandon God once again. Their eyes are caught on their, this saving person who rose up. And what was, I think what was supposed to happen was they're supposed to look at them and go, oh, isn't God good? And their, their eyes get lifted from the person to the God who sent them. And what seems to happen is they look at the person and the person dies and go, oh, no. Again, they set their eyes on the things around them rather than the one who can overcome them. And throughout the book of Judges, we'll see that God repeatedly sends a hero to save them, to take them out of their affliction and bring peace to them, but they still return to their old ways and they abandon the ways of God time after time after time. Not only that, in, in, in chapter 2, it says, they became more corrupt than their fathers. They went and bowed down to other gods, worshipping and serving them in greater and greater ways, we find through the book taking the nation further and further away from the God who loved them so much that even when they walked away from him, even then, when they broke their covenant with God, he had compassion on them and raised up men and women to save them. We read as well that God left the other nations in place, no longer driving them out. You know, they, they, they'd taken a bit of the land, hadn't taken all the land, they'd taken a bit of it, um, and uh, God says, no more. No more will I drive them out. He permits the other nations to exist alongside Israel so that Israel may be tested. And this might be something we, find, we might find a bit tricky to get our heads around, particularly in our culture. Why would God leave them, leave those who would harm his people? Why would he leave those people there? He knows they're going to hurt them. Why does he leave them there? Why does he continue to uh, permit them to continue to harm them? It seems to me that the testing that's spoken of, spoken of in this passage isn't just for the sake of it. 
It isn't there so God can enjoy watching his people suffer. Like I spoke of with the marriage covenant, there's surely an anger that rises up and burns within us due to a betrayal. I think we can all look back and think about where a relationship has hurt us. And there's this rise, rise in anger that comes up. But how much more so with God, with the adultery of Israel? God is completely perfect in all that he does and thinks. God is the measure of perfection. You know, we, we don't compare God to anything to measure his perfection. That's, that's the wrong way around. When we try and hold up this beautiful, you know, uh, uh, a massive diamond, yeah, and it's completely flawless, and you hold it up to God and it's a lump of carbon, yeah? You can't measure a perfect thing. You can't measure God by what we might consider a perfect thing because he is more perfect than that thing. Instead, Everything has to be held up to him. He is the definition of perfection. God's response then in this situation, rather than wanting everyone killed, is to offer compassion repeatedly, over and over and over, despite, of the, despite this descent of the nation through the book of Judges from start to finish. What we find as we go through, and what we will find as we study this book over time, that there is greater and greater depravity and abandoning of God as time goes on. Testing them, to my mind, is a grace gift to the nation. Something they don't deserve. They've turned away. You know, God shouldn't give them the opportunity to respond to him again. They don't deserve it. And it's a repeated opportunity for the people of God to turn to God, for the people to turn to God in each affliction, in every attack from those remaining nations they failed to drive out. They're given repeated chances to put their trust in God and they repeatedly miss the opportunity. Repeatedly they prove their trust resides not with God. Repeatedly they choose to not put their trust in him, but instead in the gods of the surrounding nations. Repeatedly they whore after these gods and the lifestyles of those around them. And they marry into those lifestyles taking the daughters of the Canaanites, Hethites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites to be their wives and giving their daughters in marriage to the sons of these nations, failing totally to follow the law of the God who loved them and warned them against these things. It was ultimately a situation they brought on themselves through breaking covenant with God. So, For us as a church, this book is going to be a challenging study of the response of the nation of Israel to each situation. I'm sure we all know that there are situations that we face where we have a choice. It might not always feel like it, but we always do have a choice. And that choice is either to follow God in this circumstance, or alternatively, as the author of Judges says later on, just to do what's right in our own eyes. So often, we know God's way, and yet we choose to abandon it and instead go our own way. And even then, when it all falls apart around us, we wonder why. I don't, I don't want to pretend that going God's way will be going the easy way. You know, the Israelites were... <laughs> the best for the Israelites was to go in and fight these people drive them out, have battles with them, push them out. 
called to go in and drive out the enemy. That doesn't sound like an easy thing, yeah? It's not a free ride. It's not a nice little chill and sort of wander in. They went to battle. Let's do strange things, you know? And they'd already done strange things, march to march round and round and round Jericho, and then the walls came down, you know? They've done some really weird stuff, and it's not easy to do that sort of stuff. Um, The thing is that whilst they were following God's way, they knew his protection. They knew they were part of something bigger, a part of becoming God's people on earth, of setting up a kingdom and a nation under God. It was something worth suffering for rather than the needless suffering of choosing not to follow God. And I think we still make that same decision today, God's way or my way. Whether it's choosing to go our own way or instead to follow Jesus, the ultimate deliverer, the ultimate hero of the people of God, so that we might be serving a king who loved us enough to send his son to deliver us and give us salvation, something that we could not achieve on our own. Just like how Israel failed to achieve all it was supposed to without God's help. Maybe you're already a follower of Jesus today. Yeah, maybe you, you, you know the call and life that God has called you to. But maybe over and over we choose to go a different direction from the way he's calling us. And then we wonder why the hardship, pain and suffering comes. The meaningless and unnecessary things that wouldn't be ours if only we followed his way. His way will still be hard. But God's on your side. You face a difficult time in your life, God will be there. If you keep seeking Him, prioritizing Him, making Him the number one in your life, He will be there if you're walking His way. If Jesus came so we'd be able to know God for ourselves, that we might be built together as believers and be presented to Him as, the ch- as a church, as His bride, as the church, as His bride. And we often think that because of that, because we're his, that everything we do must surely mean that God's in it. In reality, we always have the option, follow God or don't. We will always reap what we sow. And if we sow disobedience to the way of following Jesus, rejecting his way and going our own way, we will always find struggle and suffering. But we can take reassurance that it seems like God will always use those situations to point us back to him, always give us the opportunity to turn back to him. And in him, we can come again and we can know refreshing. His spirit refreshes us. And that all comes when we choose to get back on the path that he wants us on. God always gives everyone the opportunity to turn to him for the first time or for the umpteenth time. And when we turn to God, we get the opportunity to prioritize him and his way above everything else. To get our lives in the correct order with God and his way above all other things. When we do this, we can take assurance that things are in the right order. Our relationship with our creator is correct and we're able to walk obediently to him and with him. This means the promise that God gives us to be with us through the trials and to help us when we need help will hold true. 
God promises to be with us when we look to him for help, rather than to ourselves or to other things around us, the other gods in our lives. Um, you know, money will not save you. You know, and if you're, if you're in a, a two-bedroom flat and you think, if only I get the three-bedroom house, I will, everything will be better. And that way. It just won't. When your God is the house, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a false God. It's not going to help you at all. It won't help you at all. Actually, we need to look to our Father in heaven. He's the one who can help. He's the one who will save us out of the situation we're in. You know, we'll still have difficulties and trials to go through, but God will be with us through them. God will bring us into the fullness of the land of promise. So let me call us as a church to be walking in the fullness and the promises of God that we might know his good pleasure, that we might be a people who do the hard things with God so that we might never be struggling through without God. Finally, let's be a people who, can do, who do all we can to tell the generations of believers coming after us about God's goodness, about his faithfulness, about what he has done for them. Tell them the, 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 the fullness of the gospel, of all that Jesus did, and what all that means. You know, don't just tell them the, the first bit, oh, you no, you're, 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 you, you, if, you don't, if you don't commit to Jesus, you're going to hell. Have a good day. Um, that doesn't work, right? We need to tell them the full gospel, okay? Believe in Jesus. He came, he died for you. He was resurrected. He overcame death that we might have resurrection bodies, that we might have eternal life with him. Yeah? We're a vision-casting church. We point up to the one who has done the one who will do. Yeah? So let's be a people who heed the warning of an entire generation growing up not knowing God. Okay? Let's be a people who encourage those coming after us, those younger than us in the faith, in God's ways. Let's pray. Eternal God, we are so grateful for these stories that you give us, these history lessons of where the people of God have got it wrong in the past. And, oh God, I pray for each of us in our lives that we would be people who get it right with you, who prioritise our relationship with you above all things, that we commit corporately as well to being a people, to being your people in this place, let us be a church of unity, a church who are together seeking you and your will and your plans. Let us be a people who are sharing the gospel with those around us, that they don't have to keep going off into battles they don't need to face, but instead would be walking with God through the, the difficult times that you're calling us to. Help us to be a faithful people, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.